Good morning. I hope that you saw in your email midweek um, announcement thing that was in your inbox, those of you who get it, that we're going to have a Q&A next Sunday. So if you've got a question about something you're reading in the Bible or um, anything that you'd like to talk about with, with regard to theology or the scriptures or anything else you think would be fun to talk about, uh, there's, there is a link for you to uh, email me your question, or you can just email me your question, and I'll be happy to uh, do my best for us to discuss it next week. If I don't get any uh, questions from you, then I'll just do the second half of the message I'd planned to do this morning. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I saw a great article this week, great in the sense of (laughs) I had to laugh. In fact, I was usually read the news while I'm eating my cereal, and uh, I almost swallowed my spoon when I read this. It was pretty good. The title of the article is Scientist Puzzled Because the James Webb Satellite uh, or Telescope is Seeing Things That Shouldn't Be There. Let me, let me read part of this to you. And there's a subtitle to it. I love this. It says, from the Department of Science being wrong about stuff. <laughs> Quote, over the past several weeks, NASA's ultra-powerful James Webb Space Telescope has allowed humankind some unprecedented glimpses into the farthest reaches of our universe. And unsurprisingly, some of these dazzling new observations have raised more questions than they've answered. For a long time, for instance, scientists believe the universe's oldest earliest galaxies to be small, slightly chaotic, misshapen systems. But according to the Washington Post, this new telescope captured imagery has revealed those galaxies to be shockingly massive, not to mention balanced and well-formed, a finding that challenges and will likely rewrite long-held understandings about the origins of our universe. Dan Coe of the Space Telescope Science Institute said, quote, We thought the the early universe was this chaotic place where there's all these clumps of star formations and things are all a jumble. Garth Illingsworth, an astronomer at the University of California at Santa Cruz, said, quote, The models just don't predict this. How do you do this in the universe at such an early time? How do you form so many stars so quickly? Well, you are in Isaiah, I assume chapter 6, but keep your finger there, if you would, and look at chapter 40. Isaiah 40. Isn't that a great article? What I appreciate is the honesty, because the honesty opens the door wide for God's providence to step in and to bring truth. And some of the truth, wouldn't it be wonderful if... Uh, the world was exposed to is in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, look down at verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens in a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, 
who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their number, their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. There's the answer to what the scientists are asking from the James Webb Telescope. Well, back to Isaiah chapter 6. I read that the, um, the author of all those great Sherlock Holmes stories, I don't know if you know much about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but uh, evidently he was not a believer. In fact, he was sort of a spiritist and a bit unusual in his uh, worldview. But he had a great sense of humor. And uh, one time he sent a telegram to 12 of his friends, identical telegram, to each one of the friends at the same time, and it said this, quote, flee, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, they had all fled the country. (laughs) I don't know, it may be an apocryphal story, but it's a great story because it's rooted in a very true part of who we are as people, that we carry around with us in spite of the grace of God, a memory of our past. And sometimes that past is pretty recent, that we think about what we've done uh, in the sight of a holy God, and we realize we need to flee if it was not for the grace of God. All of us deal with the shame of a guilty conscience. Think about even the Apostle Paul when he says, you know, I'm I am least of all worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. This is the apostle of grace, and he still remembers his sin, and he writes about it in Scripture. And evidently he thinks about it because he mentions it. I'm, I'm not worthy to be an apostle, but boy, the grace of God's been amazing in my life. We deal with a guilty conscience. Uh, we always have to, have to fight it. You've seen that, that uh, game, Whack-A-Mole? where moles, you know, come up. It's just a lesson in futility. It starts off real slow, you know, mole comes up, easy, whack. Next one comes up, easy, whack. But then like two of them come up at the same time. It's like, which one do you hit? Too late, they're both gone. And, and it's just this game, and our conscience can be like that. After a while, you just, you don't even know which one to whack. There's so many moles sticking their heads out of the hole, which is probably why we can't stand silence on airplanes on elevators, sometimes even sleeping at night, we've got to have noise to quiet the the screaming of our conscience. You look at the world's solutions, and they are pretty meager, but it's the best that they can do, because if they don't have God, what else can you do but your best? The world says the way that you deal with it, if you go to the self-help books, In one form or fashion, they're all going to say basically this. Look, just do a ton of good, 
It's going to overshadow the bad, and you'll feel a whole lot better. Now, I know that sounds sort of trite, and I don't mean to diminish the value that is there in and of itself by itself, but if that's all that there is, that's not a lasting solution. Because even though the good may outweigh the bad, it doesn't erase the bad. And the bad is the problem when we come before a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, we won't look at the first five chapters of Isaiah, but if you were to have scanned them, you would see that it is a perfect setup for Isaiah 6. The book of Isaiah actually goes through, as do many of the prophets, uh, looking at the hopeful future and also God's judgment of the future. And sometimes these things are just interwoven, and it's just sort of this rat's nest of prophecy, unless you have a a system, a big biblical theology of the future that allows you to go, oh, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. Oh, he's talking about the Babylonian exile. Oh, he's talking about next week. Oh, he's talking about the eternal kingdom. There is this sense of what is Isaiah talking about all throughout the book. But in chapter 6, it is a very localized experience that Isaiah himself has. He says in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Two, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah references King Uzziah. Remember, we looked at King Uzziah some weeks back as we were in our series on the kings. By the way, we've done our series on the kings. Now, that was Josiah was the last one last week. So we'll press on to new territory next time around. Uh, but King Uzziah dies the same year that, that uh, Isaiah begins his ministry. And likely, Uzziah dies after uh, Isaiah is commissioned here. So uh, verse 1 isn't saying King Uzziah just death, just died, and now I'm starting but in the same year. And we know that Isaiah probably started his ministry before Uzziah died because uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 says that Isaiah served in the time of Uzziah. But King Uzziah, you remember how Uzziah died when we looked at him? He died because he had uh, leprosy, and he got leprosy because he uh, went into the, the temple and uh, began offering incense, which was not legitimate for a king to do. Only priests could do that. In fact, the priests, you know, kind of uh, got some courage and went in there and said, hey, king, you're not supposed to be in here. And King Uzziah got all mad and stretched his hand out. What do you know? His hand became leprous, and they hustled to get him out, and he died a leper. Uzziah died because he went into the, the temple, into the presence of a holy God, with his sin. And Isaiah has a vision of this same holy God in the same temple. We're told here that it says the train of his robe filling the temple in verse 1. This would have been Solomon's temple, the temple that Isaiah was familiar with. 
And so a vision of God in the temple, his tr- the train of his robe is filling the temple. There are angels, seraphim, who are above him, and they are flying, and they are hollering out, holy, holy, holy. Interesting, in Revelation chapter 4, you also see that uh, the, uh, the four living creatures, as they're referred to, are still saying this in the future times. So this, uh, it says that, that day and night they never cease saying it, which is sort of wonderful. You know, we sort of uh, denigrate the worship songs that just repeat themselves over and over. This one does. Over and over and over, it says. So it's not so much that it's repeating, but what is the heart doing in the words? These are saying, God is holy. The Lord is holy. And sometimes, like with our hymn, we'll say, you know, holy, 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 referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Maybe it's saying that. It could just be multiplying holiness on top of holiness. He is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And I guess by that reckoning, we could have an infinite number of holies to describe this God. And Isaiah sees him. Isaiah has a vision of this. And the angels themselves are not only flying, but they're also covering their face. The holy angels are covering their face in front of a God who is holy. This is a focus on worship. I um, always think it's interesting when it snows around here. Of course, it doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, of course, our world stops. One of the things that's neat at our house is our house has red brick, white trim, and a black, you know, composite shingles on top. And so the white trim, you know, really pops until it snows. And you realize, oh, that's not white trim. That's sort of an off-white, yellowish-looking ugly. But when you put it up against pristine white, all of a sudden the white isn't white. But you take away the pristine white, you know, the ugly yellow looks white and pretty. I think about that with relation to our holy God. You know, we compare ourselves to one another and, uh, hey, I look pretty white, right? But you put me in front of the holiness of God, I'm not white. You're not white. These holy angels focus on worshiping God in his holiness. Isaiah realizes he's in a bad way. Look at verse 5. Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, I'm ruined, meaning I am as good as dead, because I'm a sinner, and I live among sinners, and that by itself, you know, is enough to be dead, but that in the presence of a holy God, I have seen, my eyes have seen the king. You bring sin into the presence of God, it's not a good outcome, and Isaiah knows this, because in the the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah did that, and he died. Uh, I remember when I was a 12-year-old boy, I'd mow yards around the neighborhood for money, and there was this one guy that always sort of made, always kind of scared me. He lived down on the corner, right, right around the corner, and he had a pretty big yard, so it was a pretty big, you know, for me it was a pretty big paycheck. 
And uh, I put up with him because he had a big yard and I got more money. <laughs> but he was a drunk, and he didn't treat his family well. I'll just say it that simple, simply. And I remember one time I was out bagging grass or something, but the mower was off because I could hear him hollering. And he was, he'd obviously been drinking, and he yelled at his wife, I assume is his wife. I remember hearing him say, uh, he said something like, he says, what? I'm the, I'm the best person in the whole world. And I just remember thinking, 12-year-old mind, I just remember thinking, Lord, I hope not. <laughs> A lot of times we see ourselves as sort of mildly flawed perfection. You know, we're not that bad. Until you put us up against pristine white and then all of a sudden whoa I am ruined Isaiah says this is the prophet Isaiah I mean none of us are probably going to rank up there with the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Isaiah says I am ruined and he makes a personal confession my lips aren't clean I'm a sinner and I live among sinners and I am now in the presence of a God who is holy Woe is me, he says. By the way, you know the name of Isaiah's horse? It was Ismi. Woe is me. <laughs> See, there was a reason you came today. Notice Isaiah didn't say, Look at all the great stuff I've done in my life, Lord. Uh, you're about to commission me. I'm going to be one of the greatest prophets. He didn't say that. He says, I am a sinner. There's an old rabbinical phrase that I really like in talking about uh, uh, which books of the Bible are canonical or not canonical. Or Obviously, there's not any books of the Bible that are not canonical. But I mean, back in the day when they were determining which of the books or recognizing which of the books go in the Old Testament canon, there was a rabbinical phrase that said, this book makes the hands unclean. The thought being, it is holy and it reveals your unclean hands. That if, if a book, if you touched a book and it made your hands unclean, that means you're touching a holy book. It reveals the, your uncleanness. The people of the Bible, without exception, always had one reaction when they entered the presence of a holy God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They hid. And I tried the fig leaves, and it didn't work. The Lord told Moses, you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. Gideon said, alas, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Samson's parents, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Ezekiel, also by the river, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Apostle John with the angel, over and over and over, they hit the dirt in a coil of terror in the presence of of holiness. Exodus 20 verse 19 says, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. The truth of God's word gives us a closer look at ourselves than we ever really had the courage to look at before. He reveals the dirt on our hands when we hold the scriptures. He reveals the yellow dinginess of our holiness when it's put up against his holiness. And that's okay, 
because God gives us the bad news, not to leave us with the bad news, but only as the first step in the process of giving us the good news. Good news isn't good news unless you've got bad news as the context. And that's exactly what happens here. Look at verse 6. Then, meaning right after he says what he says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Our holy God is a God who provides forgiveness. The coal was taken from the altar. What happens on the altar? It's where sacrifices are made, right? Who lit that fire at the altar? God. This is the fire of God taken from a place of sacrifice and placed directly on Isaiah's unclean lips, and he's told his sins are forgiven. God's grace showed up. In other words, God's light on our sin never has as its end goal our shame. God doesn't say, hey, let me tell you about your sin, just so you can sit there and wallow in your sin. He says, let me tell you about your sin so that you realize you need my grace to be forgiven. He shows us our sin to compel us to accept the only means by which that can be removed. Isaiah realized, I'm in a bad way. And then God shows up and says, here's the solution, my grace. And it was the only solution. There was no other way out. Keep your finger here. Well, actually, keep your finger here, but then look across the page or look in chapter 7 at verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14 is not just a Christmas verse. It begins to give the solution. 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, is what the Hebrew means. Now keep your finger there and turn to chapter 53 to a familiar text. You see, it isn't just enough that God says, look, this coal is going to forgive your sins. How is God going to do it for everybody? I mean, is it a coal from the altar for everybody? In a sense, it is. It's God's provision. But we're told in the very next chapter that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This ultimately is the servant or the Messiah that Isaiah talks about. And in chapter 53, look at verse 4 this marvelous prediction. This is all future from Isaiah's perspective, even though for us it's past. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The whole chapter is a prophecy as it looks forward to the atoning, sacrificial death of this 
child born of a virgin, of course, we know this is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You see, God doesn't just show us our sin so we can go, wow, woe is me. He shows us our sin to show us our need for his grace. And then he also reveals the provision for it. And ultimately, as Isaiah prophesies, this is through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are completely forgiven. In Christ, I am completely forgiven. Will you say that with me out loud? In Christ, I am completely forgiven. One more time. In Christ, I am completely forgiven. Jesus died for your sins. And your sins, no matter how big they are, are not bigger than the grace of God. Your actions of sin are not bigger than Jesus' action of dying on the cross. Forgiveness is not an emotion to feel. This is a delusion that I often fall for, and I have to reboot my thinking with the same thinking that I'm sharing with you, and that is that forgiveness is not an emotion to feel. It is a promise to claim. It is a promise to claim. Either God's word is true or it isn't. He doesn't say, hey, place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're going to feel a lot better about yourself. That may happen. And eventually, through the renewal of the mind, it will happen. But in the moment when we are still grieving the sin that we committed in the past or maybe a sin even as a Christian that we just merely need to confess and be in fellowship with God once again, we may not feel it. We may not feel forgiven. But we're told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a promise. It is not a feeling. So principle number one, if you're a principle note taker, we could say this simply. God has completely forgiven us that we may delight in him. God has completely forgiven us that we may delight in him. And that second part is important because a lot of times we sort of look as, at the gospel as that God does all this just for us. That Jesus Christ died on the cross just to forgive me of my sins and so that I can go to heaven. Well, that's step one, but that's not the whole deal. He doesn't just save us to give us purpose so that we'll feel better about ourselves, but so that we may in turn delight in him and ultimately that we would serve him. Look at verse 8 back in Isaiah 6. Notice, notice the progression. In the presence of a holy God with sin. Woe is me. That sin is completely removed. Now the sin is forgiven. We're told there in verse 7, your sin is forgiven. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. See the prog progression? God saves us, but he didn't just leave us there in our salvation and say, great, see you at the rapture. He gives us purpose. He saves us to serve him, not just to be saved and forgiven. Saved and forgiven is a great first step. The next step is serving God. 
if Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins, if you have embraced that truth, then take the next step and serve Christ somehow, some way. Don't just be a saved person that, you know, stays moral and does all that you need to do to just be a good American. Serve the Lord. And here's the second principle. As our delight in God grows, so does our passion to serve him. As our delight in God grows, so does our passion to serve him. I hope that you are at the place in your walk with God where you can't stand to not do nothing for him. I mean, you just sort of get itchy if you're not doing anything for God. That if it's just all about me, 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 then there's this sense of uncomfortableness. That's healthy. We are to be serving the Lord. In fact, as our delight in God grows, our passion to serve him should grow as well. Isaiah says, send me. Here am I. Send me. I love the response that some people (laughs) sort of have the mindset, you know, where the Lord says, uh, who will go for us? And they say, here am I. Send Rex. (laughs) Right? Send the missionaries. Send the pastors. Send the staff. Send the professionals. No, send us. Send me. When we are full of the awesome power of God, we'd want to do nothing but worship and serve him. And that doesn't mean that you have to become a vocational minister of some kind or get involved like on a church staff or you know, go to the Congo. You can serve right where you are. In fact, God sovereignly put you where you are so that you can serve right where you are. He's strategically put you where you are and impassioned you that you may have an effect for him right where he's put you. We see this throughout the scripture. I love it. When Peter came face to face with Jesus, remember? He says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus didn't say, you know what, Peter? You are right. Hit the road. He didn't. He said, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for men. See the progress? He, Peter confesses his sin. They deal with the sin. And now Jesus gives him a purpose. Said the same thing to him in the upper room when Jesus predicted Peter's denial. He says, you're going to deny me. And then, then uh, he also told Peter, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. After you've repented of your sin, take up your purpose again. Strengthen your brothers. Uh, Jurassic Park, I don't know how many of these we've got now. A bunch of them. I guess as long as we keep going to see them, they're going to keep making them. But uh, anyway, and I remember in the very first Jurassic Park, this, uh, you know, the, the, the main character was this paleontologist who'd done all this studying about dinosaurs, blah, 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 and then he sees one. And he can't believe it. The world's expert on dinosaurs until he actually sees one. There's no comparison. That's kind of how we are with the Bible and the Word of God. It's not enough to just study it, to just have this cognitive input, to let our quiet time with the Lord each day just be this, just be study. 
What if we came face to face with the real God and not just words on a page? We would want to respond and worship him and serve him. It doesn't need to be fearful. It needs to be focused and committed. All right, well, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for a chance to wade into this wonderful scene that Isaiah had as he stood before you with his sin, and then that sin problem was taken care of, and he was given a commission, a purpose. It's a very simple lesson to which each of us can apply to our hearts and lives. Give us the strength to do so. Thank you that, that Isaiah believed enough in the forgiveness that you provided, that he was able, even in his imperfection, to move forward and serve you. Help us, Father, to do that. In and of ourselves, none of us are worthy. Even the Apostle Paul said he was the chief of sinners. It's not because of our worthiness that we serve. It's because you have forgiven You have given us a righteousness that we could not have otherwise. And it is a righteousness of Christ, freely given when we believed. Lord, we pray for anyone here today who is still trusting in a life of good deeds or even has the the idea that there is no sin in their heart. Would you open the eyes of their heart that the light of the gospel might shine in and that they would believe in Jesus who died for their sins and gave him the gift of salvation and forgiveness. For each of us that are fully committed to that belief, Lord, would you also bless us with a purpose that's bigger than our own selves. Impassion us to serve you in some way to make an impact in this world that desperately needs to hear the gospel and to see the gospel lived out in lives that love you. We do love you, Lord. Thank you for this um, brief time in the word, this brief time that we've had together today. And as we go forward, we ask that your spirit would walk with us, tap us on the shoulder throughout the week, remind us that you love us and that you've given us purpose. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget to uh, send Wayne your questions for next week. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.